Thank you, Kathy. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. So glad to be with you this morning. Could I ask you to stand as we read a portion of our text for today? It's Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning, and we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning together, but I want to just read these first couple verses for us. It's on page 822 in the Pew Bible. So grab a Bible and follow along with God's word as I read. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And after Jesus, and after, I'm going to restart. (laughs) And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, they appeared to them, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them, saying, Arise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Lord God, I pray that you would use this chapter, Matthew 17, this morning to to meet each one of us where we're at, to instruct us on the things of Jesus, to empower us to imitate him, And to meet each one of us where we're at this morning, Lord. Some of us on the mountaintop, like the disciples were here. Some of us in the valley, like the disciples are in the next chunk of this chapter. Some of us somewhere in between. And Lord, I pray that you would meet each one of us this morning in our place, where we're at, and lead us to where you desire us to be. In your presence, where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, I have this vivid memory from the first night that my wife Brittany and I hung out. We were both attending Crown College and a group of our friends, we had some roommates who were friends and I was a part of this group of friends that Brittany had just moved in with this this roommate friend of ours and so she was joining our friend group and so we had this night to all hang out together and it was the first like interaction that Brittany and I had kind of in a in a smaller setting. We had a speech class together and we didn't think much about each other. In fact, I thought she was a little bit annoying because I thought she was too mature for her age. It turns out she was actually just mature for her age and she didn't think much about me because I acted too immature for my age, and it turns out I was immature for my age. And so this night, we started hanging out together, and I have this vivid memory of, I I was wearing a t-shirt with As I Lay Dying on the front. It said As I Lay Dying, and it had a picture of a skeleton. Now, some of you, how many of you have heard of a band called As I Lay Dying? Put your hand up nice and high, a few of you. How many of you have heard of the William Faulkner classic novel, As I Lay Dying? Put your hand up nice and high. Oh, not that many people. Okay, I'm surprised, but I was wearing this shirt because I loved the hardcore metal band As I Lay Dying. Brittany didn't know that. We were just getting to know each other, and she said, oh, you like As I Lay Dying as well. That's a great book. I'm like, I didn't, I, I'm like a bunch of you. I didn't know it was a book. That should have been a clue to us right away that for us to find some common ground in liking musical, in our musical taste and our musical preference, it was going to take a lot of work. 
And as we got to know one another, I got to know some of her bands, and she likes musicals. And, and one of her favorite bands was this band called Dave Matthews Band, which I remembered listening to in high school, or my friends listening to in high school, or not even my friends, the people that I didn't want to be friends with listened to this band in high school. And I thought, this is never going to work. I mean, we spent the night flirting and kind of, you know, we had this attraction to each other. But other than this musical difference, we're like, what in the world? And, and over time, we have come to appreciate each other's musical styles. See, I brought her to, I was a youth pastor for a while, and so I brought our youth group to Sunshine. How many of you have heard of Sunshine Music Festival? It was a big Christian music festival that happened in Wilmer, Minnesota for years. And I was the guy, I was the youth pastor with the youth group who always went to the hardcore stage. With all the heavy metal bands. The place where As I Lay Dying played. And so I brought Brittany to watch them, and, and she had no interest in this band. I mean, we actually broke up for a while, and it wasn't because of my musical taste. There was a lot involved in our breakup, but part of it was that we just, we didn't have this appreciation for each other's kind of nuances and certain things about each other. And I remember driving her up to Grand Marais, where my parents lived, to visit my parents once and playing hardcore music for her almost the whole way. And now I can see her face, and I'm like, I should, that should have been a clue to me. She's uninterested. Find something else. Listen to something different. And, um, but she, she put up with it, and I put up with her music. But it was when we went into the HM stage and she saw the band As They Lay Dying live that, that something switched for her. She became more appreciative of them. She, she heard it not just as noise coming through the speakers in my car, but she saw some musical skills, some musical talent. And slowly, t over time, she began to actually, every now and then, listen to them on her own. See, the same thing happened for me with Dave Matthews' band, and I probably shouldn't admit that because some of you probably think a pastor shouldn't listen to that band, but I do, whatever. We can talk about that later. It, what, what happened with me and that band is she always listened to it, and I, it just never, never quite s sat with me. You know, I just, I don't know, it didn't do it for me, but they came into town once on concert, and being a good, we were newlyweds, and being a good husband, I wanted to bless her, so I bought tickets for us to go and see Dave Matthews' band in concert. And seeing them live, I was hooked. They were just incredible live. They played for two and a half hours. They extended their normally on CD five-minute songs into 15-minute songs. And they just so incredibly gifted as musicians. And they're one of my favorite bands now today. And it's because we, we grew in this appreciation of one another's musical preferences and interests. I specifically grew in interest of Dave Matthews' band because I beheld them. I beheld them. That's not a word that we use a lot in our, in our common vernacular, to behold something. But it's a very consistent word used in Scripture. Some of you may have noticed as I read through Matthew chapter 17, uh, the couple verses here in verse 3, it says, And behold. If you have an ESV or a New King James Version or a couple different versions, they use the word behold. Some of the more modern translations do away with it and you won't see the word behold there. But in the ESV, the English Standard Version, it says, and behold, in verse 3. You see that? And then look down at verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. See, this word behold, it means to see and to perceive. It means to see and to understand. It means to see and to take hold of, to embrace, to make your own. That's what I did with Brittany's musical interests. As I, as I saw it, 
Something happened in me. Something changed in me. I thought, I see what she appreciates. I see what she likes. I want to adopt this as my own because there's something here that is worthy of enjoying. There's something here that is worthy of consuming. And thank the Lord, she saw the same thing with the band as they lay dying. And what we see here in this text is this call for us as people to behold Jesus. Again, this word behold, it's used almost 1,300 times in all of Scripture. The Old and the New Testament, 1,300 times. If you have a translation that doesn't do away with it, it's a biblical word that's in here on purpose. By comparison, the word worship is used around 300 times in the whole Bible. The word love is used about 700 times in the whole Bible. The word sacrifice is used about 300 times in the entire Bible. The the word prayer or pray is used about 400 times in the entire Bible. Sing is used around 200 times and praise about 250 times in the entire Bible. Pretty important words to us, right? As Christians, we would say, oh yeah, worship, love, sacrifice, pray, sing, praise. These are biblical words, but they're used only a fraction of the amount of time that the word behold is is used. And this word is so discarded, some of our translators just do away with it altogether. But I think it's important to pause and talk about what it means to behold. As we walk through Matthew 17 this morning, I I think Matthew uses this word to remind us that we ought to behold the Christ that we ought to see and perceive, that we ought to see with clarity, that we ought to see and, and grab onto and take hold of and embrace what we are seeing happening. And so as we walk through the book of Matthew, we're seeing who Jesus is, how Jesus lived, how he thought, how he reasoned, how he communicated, what he called people to. And you and I, are, if we are to be Christ followers like Christ, we ought to behold the Christ. So our big idea for this morning is that we become like Jesus as we Behold Jesus. See, the Christian life isn't just about Jesus delivering us from and forgiving us from our sin. Yes, that's absolutely essential. But oftentimes what we do in the church is we kind of skip over the life of Jesus and we look at his death and his resurrection and we talk about the the hope of the new birth that we have and this eternal life that we have and we kind of forget about this life here now and we forget to look at Jesus' life. He's not just the sacrifice for our sins. He's also an example for you and I to follow. He's a human who we ought to behold. And as we behold him, we become more like him. And so as we walk through Matthew 17 this morning, I think there's four characteristics of Jesus' nature that are worthy of you and I beholding. And the more that we behold these characteristics, the more that we look at Jesus' nature and his character, the more that we're actually transformed to become like him. The more that I listened to Dave Matthews' band and saw them in person, the more that I appreciated them, the more that I wanted to listen to them, the more that I understood Brittany's love of them and vice versa, her with my band. And it works the same with anything. What we behold is what we often become. Or we become like that thing. And so this morning, I want us to see Jesus here in Matthew chapter 17. I want us to behold Jesus and to become more like him. And so four different characteristics that we're going to see of Jesus. And I want us to behold those characteristics this morning. The first one is as we behold Jesus' glory, we grow in glory. And this is verses 1 through 17. 1 through 13, excuse me. This is the transfiguration. 
So we read it. Jesus goes up onto a mountaintop here. And there, there's a lot of imagery here in this chapter, even with being on a mountaintop and seeing the glory of God and then coming down from the mountaintop and experiencing some, some trying circumstances. Just like life, we're on a journey. The disciples were on a journey with Jesus. And sometimes it's like we're on a mountaintop. Sometimes it's like we're in the valley. Sometimes it's like we're somewhere in between. And we see that happening here in this chapter. But it starts out with Jesus' glory. And as we behold Jesus' glory, we grow in glory. Let's first talk about Jesus' glory. See, Jesus is the Son of God. He's 100% God, 100% man. And this chapter shows us this transfiguration. Look at verse 2. So they're up on this high mountain, and he, Jesus, was transfigured. That word is, is metamorphosis. It's, it's to be transformed. It's to, to, to have a physical change of appearance before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, see there's the word from Matthew, behold. Pay attention, look, see. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. I, I don't know what Peter's thinking. Like, Lord, it's good that I'm here. You're lucky to have me here. Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, again, pay attention. Listen. Listen up. Look closely. Take hold of this. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Rise. And have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. See, we see this, this picture of Jesus being transformed. The voice of God coming from heaven, setting apart his son, saying, this is my glorious one. This is my son who I love. Listen to him. We, we get a picture, and Peter and James and John, they get a picture here of Jesus in all of his glory. He's transformed. He's transfigured, revealing divine glory. So Jesus, the Son of God, here he, he becomes white and his appearance looks different. It's hard to look at. He's radiating like the sun. He is actually revealing the divine glory. He's setting apart for the disciples the, the reality. He's showing them, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am divine glory. Jesus is unlike any other human in that he is God. He lived a perfect life. He had the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He's shown like the glory of God. And it's interesting, just the, the imagery here of both Moses and Elijah being on the mountain with Jesus. This goes back to some Old Testament teaching and helping us to understand what it looks like to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so flip with me to Exodus chapter 33. We're going to look at Moses and Elijah both experiencing the glory of God briefly here. Exodus chapter 33, it's on page 74 in the Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 33, and so Moses is having these encounters with God on Mount Sinai. He's gotten the law of God. He's bringing it to the people of God. He's, he's the representative between man and God. And Moses here at Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, they're, they're about to continue moving and, and Moses' time is about up, and he's saying, God, if you're going to lead us, you need to show me your glory. Show me something. In verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all of my goodness, the he there is God, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face or man shall not see me for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See, God, God is making his glory pass by Moses here, and he's saying you have to shield your face, hide your face, because I'm so glorious, I'm so holy, I'm so bright, I'm so lovely, you can't stand in my presence. And then flip over to Exodus 34, verse 29, when Moses then comes down from the mountain with God's law. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that, his, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. See, he had seen the glory of God and, and he had to shield himself from it. It was too bright, it was too holy, it was too other. But he had encountered God and it actually transformed, it transfigured Moses' appearance. He came down from the mountain and his skin shone, the face of his skin shone because he had been talking with God. Verse 29. And then as you go through the rest of that passage, it talks about him having to cover his face with a veil because it was too bright. And see, there's this, this clue here when the... When the disciples, Peter, James, and John, see Jesus on the mountain and he's transfigured and he's there with Moses and Elijah, Moses has experienced this before. He's experienced the glory of the Lord. He's had his face transformed by the glory of the Lord. Likewise, so has Elijah. Look at 1 Kings 19. It's on page 301 in the Pew Bible. 1 Kings 19. And so Moses represents the law of God. He's showing them that the law of God is God's glorious communication to people. And Elijah represents the prophets of God. Elijah was one of the prophets. And he's representing the word of God that is proclaimed, is, is glorious. And so look at 1 Kings 19 and let's see what happens with Elijah. 1 Kings 19 verse 8. And this is after he has, he has called down fire and defeated the prophet Baal. Verse 8. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And some of you may be fasting from certain things for Lent. Just keep in mind, that, that's a biblical practice. There's this imagery in scripture of Jesus fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, of Elijah here eating and drinking and going and using that food on a 40-day fast as he seeks God on a mountain. Verse 9, And then he came to the cave and lodged in it. And behold, there it is again. Behold, take note of, pay attention to, watch what's going on. The word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, for the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the people of the Lord, the God of hosts, for my people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. You see this interaction here? Elijah is having this interaction with the glory of the Lord, and he covers his face because there's this bright radiance. Both Elijah and Moses are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, with Peter, with James, and with John. They've experienced the, the radiant glory of God. And so in Jesus, we see the glory of God. Jesus supernaturally transforms Jesus' appearance and reveals the, the holiness of God in Christ to the disciples, verifying it with Moses and Elijah, the, the, the law and the prophet, verifying that the, the new law is among them, Jesus the Christ, that the ultimate prophet is among them, Jesus the Christ, and they're transformed. Jesus is transformed in front of them. And in the same way, as we behold Jesus' glory, we are to see here in, in the transfiguration, kind of the setting apart of Jesus, that he is holy, that he is other. And as we behold him, as both a man and a God, we grow in glory. This seems a little bit heretical even to say because we, we often say like God is glorious, he gets all the glory, we don't, and that is true. You'll notice here in this statement that I have up on the screen that Jesus is transfigured, revealing divine glory. Jesus reveals to us divine glory. But as we look to Jesus, as we behold him and his glory, we also grow in glory, in his glory, in becoming like him. And so the second piece of this is as we behold Jesus' divine glory, we are transfigured to reflect this same glory. See, Jesus reveals God's divine glory to us, but you and I, as we look to Jesus, as we behold him, we reflect God's glory to others. We're transfigured. Scripture tells us that, that we also are transformed, that, that, that we move from one degree of glory to another. And so let's look at this in Scripture. A couple examples. Psalm 34, 4 through 5. It's on page 464. And David the psalmist cries out, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Verse 5 is key. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. See, see, church, as we behold the glory of God in the person of Christ, you and I actually glow, we, we grow in glory. Maybe glow is a, a good word for that. We, we, we radiate the glory of God as we behold Jesus, as we look to him, as we see his example. The disciples are transformed, they're changed, not here in this passage, but throughout the New Testament. Peter, James, and John, there's something different about them. There's a change that happens. The psalmist here tells us that those who look to him, verse 5, are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So there's something unique about a Christian, a Christ follower who, look, who looks to Jesus, who beholds his glory and actually has a change of countenance. There, there's something unique, and, and you probably know people like this, who you just, when you interact with them, it just seems like you're in the presence of God. Like, their gentle smile, their calm voice, their reassuring words, 
there's this transformation that happens to mankind when we behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so church family, if you want to be that type of person, behold Jesus' glory. Don't practice your smile in the mirror. You can do that, but, but the way that we are transformed, the way that we show God's glory to others is being transformed by him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with me, and this is a really pointed passage on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's on page 965 in the Pew Bible. This entire chapter, I highly encourage you to go home and read it this afternoon. It's an incredible picture of like when Moses was on Mount Sinai interacting with the Lord, he saw the glory of the Lord, and it was, it was miraculous. And oftentimes you and I want these miraculous encounters with God. And this passage is actually telling us that what we have is better than what Moses had. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I'm just going to jump in at verse 18 here. But I encourage you to read this chapter later on. And so it's saying that, that Moses brought the law of God down and, and he had to cover his face because he had been in the glory of the Lord and his face was radiant and shining and bright and he had to veil his face. But here's the, the truth of the New Testament, what's true for you and I, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, not like Moses covering our face, but with unveiled face, we behold the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Isn't that incredible, church? He, Paul is saying here that as we behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, we are transformed, we are transfigured, metamorphous. We are changed into the same image. Do you want to be like Christ? You want to act like Christ. You want to think like Christ. You want to respond like Christ. You want to have compassion like Christ. Do you want to have a radiant, joyful, encouraging, welcoming countenance and presence? Behold Jesus. He's the one who transforms us. Sorry, I didn't have those passages up there earlier. There they are if you want to write those down. We, as we behold Jesus' divine glory, we are transfigured to reflect this same glory. Flip back to Matthew 17. And so this first section ends, and as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, verse 9, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And so Jesus here is trying to keep things quiet until his time to be crucified. He's, he's getting near to the cross here. He's saying, don't, don't tell everyone about this yet. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did whatever, but did whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah coming before him, and, and people crucified John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying, the, the world doesn't see me. The world isn't going to see me, but you see me. You know me. Behold my glory, and as you behold my glory, you become like me. You are my representatives. You represent the glory of God to the world, the radiant face of God, the smile of God. You are his chosen representatives to go out into the world and to be the radiant glory of God to a world who doesn't know Christ and to, to radiate the smile of God to a world who doesn't know Christ. And so, church, if you want to be that, Behold Jesus' glory and you become 
like it. The second one in this text here is, as we behold Jesus' power, we grow in power. And this is going to move us to verses 14 through 21. So they come down from the mountain. They're at this mountaintop experience, right? That's the definition of a mountaintop experience. The disciples on the mountaintop with Jesus, they hear the voice of God. They see Moses and Elijah. God's voice says, this is my beloved son. Could you imagine that? Like when you're struggling with your faith, how often do you want God to speak to you in an audible voice? How often do you want God to show you something supernatural? They got that. This mountaintop experience, they come down from the mountain, and there's a whole different scene going on here. There's people struggling in the valley. Verse 14, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. This, this suffering Boy, suffering, falling into water, falling into fire. The disciples, Jesus' chosen crew, they, they can't help him. Our world is full of disease and sickness and suffering and sadness and brokenness and people who feel incapable or unable to do anything about it. Verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And what Matthew is wanting us to see here is that as we behold Jesus' power, we also grow in power. The disciples didn't have power to do anything about this demon-possessed boy. Why? Well, well, Jesus says, because of your little faith. They had been walking with Jesus for a couple of years now. They had seen him doing all these miracles, but, but they were doubting. They weren't fully beholding his power. And in that, they were weak in and of themselves. How often do, do, we, do we feel weak to do anything about the suffering, the sickness, the sadness around the world, and we feel weak, and I think it's often because we forget to behold his power, to remember what Jesus has done, how he has done it, that he has empowered us to do it, that he has given us authority to do it. This passage shows us the type of power and compassion that is produced by faith in God. See, see, Jesus is abiding in the Father. He's living his life and ministry in the power of God, and this gives him a great compassion for people. We've seen that over and over again in the scriptures, that he's compassionate on people who are broken and who are far from him. And he also has power, divine power, granted to him from God to make a difference. And so, church, as we behold Jesus' power, we grow in the power of increased faith in God's will. Not increased faith in our ability to bring about our will by using God's power. That's a clunky sentence, right? It's a clunky and, and hard to understand sentence, but I want to just pause here for a moment and say, okay, so verse, they were incapable of casting out this demon. Jesus says, they ask why we couldn't do it. Jesus says in verse 20, because of your little faith. And so oftentimes in the church, we think if we just have more faith, if we just muster it up, if we have a stronger faith, we can do anything. And, and Jesus, that's what he's saying, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, a small amount of faith in an incredibly big and powerful God, 
That's what he's saying. Just a small amount of faith. It's not the amount of your faith. It's not the veracity of your faith. It's about the object of your faith. If you have a small amount of faith in the right object, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, is Jesus actually giving the disciples the authority to move mountains around? Have you ever driven by a mountain and thought, I'm going to try this out? I mean, Jesus said it. Come on, I have faith. Mountain, move. And it doesn't happen. It's a figure of speech. Jesus isn't actually telling his disciples to go rearrange the mountains and, you know, the seas and like, hey, if you want a house, buy a mountain, add a sea, just move it around and position it. You can have what you want. No, he's saying a small amount of faith in the right object gives you this incredible power. And this power, as we go throughout the New Testament, we understand this power to be an increased faith in God's will. Not an increased faith in our ability to bring about our will by using God's power. You understand the difference there? So often we think, this is what I want to happen. So I got to have faith. I got to have faith. God, would you do this? Would you heal this? Would you take this away? Would you change the circumstance? And really, it's our will. And sometimes our will and God's will aligns, but... In God, in his sovereignty, he will transform and change and transfix our will onto his. But that's really the power of faith. The power of faith is to be able to say, to say your will be done, not my will. This is what Jesus himself does. Jesus has this authority and confidence to heal because he's, he's divine and he's walking fully in the spirit and he is transfixed on God's face. He's beholding the glory of God and as we behold Jesus, our power is increased. Our power to trust what God does. Church family, we, we have so many people going through suffering right now and prayers for healing, prayers for God to change things and, and God has just given me this simple little prayer the last couple months as I've been praying for my father-in-law to be healed of cancer and it's not looking like it's going that way. But my simple prayer has just been, and God gave me this prayer, is, God, you can heal Steve. I ask that you would heal Steve. Help us to trust what you do. And that's what Jesus is getting at and what the entire scope of Scripture, if we look at this text, what Jesus is teaching here, in the entire scope of the Scriptures, we understand that the power that we have as Christians, as we behold Jesus, as we look at his power, isn't to just do things that we want to do, like use God as a genie, right? That I have faith, so therefore I'm going to pray in faith and all these things are going to be changed and done according to my will. No, our increased power as we behold the power of Jesus is to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I want to call us to beholding Jesus' power, as we do, we grow in power. We grow in the power to say, your will be done, not my will be done. The third one here is, as we behold Jesus' sacrifice, we grow in sacrifice. So keep moving. Look at verse 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the disciples here are now gathered, that smaller group of them, the crowds are gone, the disciples are together with Jesus. Jesus says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Again, the disciples back down in the valley. No rabbi, no teacher, no healer. 
no great one. We gave up our jobs as fishermen and tax collectors to follow you. We have no plan B. I don't want to go back home and fish with Zebedee, my dad. Who wants to go fish with Zebedee? I'm, I'm changing the world. I'm walking with the master. I'm walking with the healer. You are going to set up shop in Jerusalem. You're going to be king. And because I'm close to you, I'm going to have a place of prestige and prominence next to you. So they're greatly distressed. We gave up everything for a man who's going to die? Jesus says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, but he will be raised on the third day. And Jesus has already said this over and over again in Matthew. In fact, it just was recorded in 1712. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. He's cluing us in here to the fact that Jesus' cross precedes his crown. That, That suffering is the path to glory. That servanthood, that sacrifice is the path to glory. Jesus is saying, as, as you behold my willing sacrifice, my laying my life down, you will become more sacrificial in and of yourself. And here's the glory of this passage, is that Jesus gave his life in our place, but he rose from the dead that we might receive God's grace. Again, as we continue through the New Testament, that's why we can't get too locked in onto one passage, but we have to consider it in the whole sweeping scope of Scripture. We know that Jesus overcame sin and death in the grave. He predicted it here. He prophesied it. Verse 23, they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He's cluing them in that the Christian life is one of sacrifice. It's one of laying your preferences down, laying your life down, laying your will down for the will of God and the good of others. And so, church family, as you and I behold Jesus' sacrifice and his victorious resurrection, we grow in our willingness to sacrifice our own lives for the sake of others because we no longer fear death. As we look to Jesus the one who willingly went to the cross, laid his life down in our place, on our behalf, sacrificed his life. Before he sacrificed his life, he sacrificed all glory in heaven to come and walk on this mess of an earth. Right? I mean, he was in heaven, all things were glorious and good, being worshipped by the angels sitting next to the Father, and then he was born to an unmarried virgin in a small backwoods town where everyone judged him and his family. He grew up with with political rulers and kings wanting to kill him. And because they couldn't get him, they killed all the boys his age. He was ridiculed. He was despised. He was forsaken. He laid it all down for us. And as we look to his sacrifices, we behold how Jesus lived his life. How Jesus lived a sacrificial life. You and I grow in our ability and willingness to sacrifice our own preferences, our own desires, our own wills, our own wants, our own ways for the sake of others. Some people to the point of death. Think about Jim Elliott going as a missionary and giving up his life so that a people who didn't know Christ could hear about Christ. Think about some of our own global partners who have gone around the world and gone into dangerous situations, sacrificing their own life, sacrificing their own home, sacrificing their own 401ks for the sake of others, and they have nothing to fear. You and I have nothing to fear. Not all of us are called to make that kind of same sacrifice, right? Don't elevate a global partner. That's a different calling. And so they're not a higher level of Christian because they've sacrificed all of the earthly goods to go and be a global partner. God's called them to do that. 
So if God's called you to do that, you go and do that. But it's not because you're a better Christian or more holier than thou. As Christ followers, we ought to behold Jesus' sacrifice. And as we do, we grow in our willingness to sacrifice, whatever that means for you. That means you sacrifice lattes every Tuesday, then sacrifice lattes every Tuesday and give that seven bucks to somebody who needs it. I don't, I don't know how God's calling you to sacrifice, but as you look to Jesus, he empowers us to make more sacrifice. And again, we have nothing to fear. Makes me think of 1 Corinthians 15, which says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? There is no sting to death. There is no victory in death if we are in Christ. Because he overcame sin and death in the grave, as Jesus prophesied in verse 23, he will be raised on the third day. You and I have no fear of death. And, and what better grounds to live a sacrificial life? I mean, this is how the apostles did it. This is how the disciples did it. This is how the apostle Paul did it. What, what can they do to me? They can take everything. They can take my family. They can take my friends. They can take my church. They can take my country. They can take my religious liberties. They can take my freedoms. Doesn't matter. Because I have eternal hope in the glory of God. I'm looking to Jesus, the one who sacrificed it all, who laid it all down and overcame sin and death in the grave, and I have nothing to fear. And so therefore, I can live my life free of the control of anything. Can you imagine? That's what Jesus is calling us into, to be holding his sacrificial life so that, yes, you and I grow in sacrifice, but really the key to that is we can live our lives free. The most sacrificial people are those who are free. I don't need it all. I, I've already got it all. It, maybe it'll come 80 years from now when I pass away. Maybe it'll come today when I pass away. I don't know. But, but I've already got it all stored up for me in the heavenly places. And so we live a sacrificial life as we behold Jesus and consider his sacrifice. And then the last one here is that as we behold Jesus' submission, we grow submissive. And most people just don't even like this word. We're Americans. We submit to no one. We are our own gods. We are our own kings. We are our own bosses. We are autonomous. We're free. Yeah, you're free to serve your master. So as we behold Jesus' submission, we grow submissive. Look at verses 22 through 27. And as they were uh, 24 through 27, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so here what's happening is there's this temple tax that is being taken and, and the religious leaders are kind of testing Jesus and his disciples. Do you guys pay the temple tax like a good Jew should? Are you guys doing this? And, and they're, they're questioning Jesus. They're trying to corner him. They're testing him again. And Jesus asks Peter, well, is, is, do the kings of the world take tax from their own kids or from the, the citizens of their country? As well from the citizens of their country. And Jesus is saying it's the same thing. This is the temple tax. I am the new temple. Jesus has said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. We know that in the New Testament, the, the temple is the people of God. It's 
the Christ. It's not this physical place and building. And so Jesus is saying, because I'm the temple, I'm free from paying temple tax, as are you, my followers. We're free. We don't have to pay that temple tax to the Jews, to the Jewish temple. But yet in this, Jesus submits. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, yet he was submissive to earthly authority and to God's will. See, God had, has called people to submit themselves to earthly authorities, to governing powers, and if this contradicts God's word, we don't do it. But there's many things that are governing authorities, that are world powers, that are church leaders. It's kind of a parallel here to church leaders and temple that they do that don't contradict God's will. We just may not, we just feel like, I don't want to do that. Jesus had every right not to pay the temple tax. But he says, hey, God's put these priests, these religious leaders in authority, and he's challenged them over and over again. He's not giving in to every one of their rules and their traditions, which they've elevated to God's status. But he is saying, I'm going to submit myself to things that, that are, it's not ungodly, it's just not necessary, but I'm going to submit myself to human authority. Isn't that amazing? The Son of God submitting himself to the Jewish temple tax when he himself is the temple? And I love how he, he's sovereign over heaven and earth. I mean, look at how he shows his disciples submissiveness. He's proving, I'm sovereign. I can do all things. I have all control over the sea and the fish in the sea. He says, go to the sea, cast a line into the ocean, and the first fish that you pull out, there will be the exact amount of money that you need for your tax in its mouth. Like, Jesus is just communicating to Peter, I'm in control of all things. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. The sea and the fish in the sea obey me. And yet I'm going to submit myself to human authority because that's God's way. That's God's will. And so he models for them this submissiveness. And church family, as we behold Jesus' submission, we grow in our willingness to submit to earthly authority and ultimately to Christ's authority. How many of you love to submit to authority? And we live in this culture that we are our only authority. We are our highest God. But church, the, the joy and the glory of following Jesus is that we can freely submit to earthly authorities that God has put in place. And, and if it contradicts what's good and right in God's word, there's a, there's a place to push back, to not submit, to, to figure out how to do that respectfully and, and reasonably and in a godly way. But as we behold Jesus' submission, we grow submissive. So what authorities are in your life that you just don't like submitting to? Bosses at work, politicians, pastors, wh whatever it is. You don't, you don't, like, within marriage relationships, what does that look like? Leadership and submission and love and respect. The, the way forward at, for a Christian isn't to just grin and bear it. The way forward for us as Christians is to behold Jesus. As we behold Jesus, as we look to him, as, as we look and see, as we grab hold of him, as we, as we taste and see that the Lord is good, we, church family, are transformed. As we behold Jesus' glory, we grow in glory. As we behold Jesus' sacrifice, we grow in sacrifice. As we behold Jesus' submission, we grow in submission. As we behold Jesus' fourth one, 
we grow in power. We grow in power. And so church family, I want to invite you this morning to be holding Jesus again, anew and afresh. We'll, we'll do that as we sing gospel songs and as we take communion. When we gather at Park Community Church, it's an opportunity weekly for us to behold him. You, you come forward to take communion. There's two stations here in the front and one in the back. And you take hold of that bread which represents his life given for you. You take hold of that cup which represents his blood shed for you and behold it. Remember the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember the power of God through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus and remember the submissiveness of Jesus and you yourself behold him, trusting that he will transform you into his image and likeness for his glory, for the good of those that you do life with and for the advancement of his gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You truly are an incredible man, a person fully worthy of our imitation. But not only are you a man, you are a God. You are God in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we thank you for giving us a pathway, an example of how to live our lives. And we thank you for making sacrifice in our place on our behalf. Lord, I ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would help us to behold you this morning, to taste and see that you are good. Pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.